Welcome to Prioritize Your Mind with Jeffrey Lewis. We will offer strategies for improving mental health through informative interviews with local, regional, and national experts. We're here this morning with Dr. Chris Anna Mink. Dr. Mink is a multifaceted professional. She is a pediatric infectious disease specialist, a clinical professor of pediatric medicine at UCLA, a member of the Center for Healthcare Journalism, and most recently, she's been working as a healthcare reporter for the Modesto Bee. And thankfully, she's been doing that because she's raised the bar in terms of what good healthcare reporting really is. Dr. Mink, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I thought what we would do is have a conversation about COVID and the coronavirus. Uh, I should explain to everyone that this is not medical advice. This is a Q&A b- between the president of the foundation and an experienced, knowledgeable, and expert doctor in infectious disease. So as you listen to this, remember it's a Q&A. And let's begin by revisiting for the public, what's coronavirus and COVID-19? It's a really great place to start because you'll see a lot of times in news reports that they're interchanged and they're really different terms. Coronavirus is a family of viruses that can infect animals and humans, and it's a very, very frequent cause of just the common cold. COVID is smushed together words to mean coronavirus infections, and that's the disease. That's the one where you actually have symptoms and you're sick. So they're a little bit different. Um, and it's hard to keep all those. Certainly, we've had a lot of lingo over the last year and a half with the pandemic, but it's good to it's good to keep those things separate. When you think about COVID-19 and the Central Valley versus the rest of California, what communities have we seen bear the biggest brunt? It's an excellent question also. Here in the Central Valley, um, we have really seen our uh, Hispanic Latino community hit very hard. Um, actually, nationwide, Black and Brown and Indigenous populations have suffered much more of the consequences of the infections. Um, for example, the the Black and Brown population have about four times higher rate of being hospitalized and twice the death rate that we've seen in the majority white population. So it's a big deal. And it's a big deal here in the Valley to try and get the right information, such as these kind of Q&As, to our um, communities that are sometimes not included in a lot of the messaging. The farm workers here, the frontline workers, a lot of them are people of color and they're bearing an undue burden. Statistically, I think that Latinos are about 42, 44% of our population, but they're about 60% of the infections with COVID. You're an expert on health insecurity, or what I refer to commonly as food insecurity. You did, a, you did a marvelous piece for the Modesto Bee talking about that, looking across the whole valley. Is there a nexus between COVID-19 and food insecurity among the Latino population? Absolutely. Um, and that point where they intersect is part of 
the health disparities and the food insecurity. And um, to be really direct, racism is a root of a lot of it. And it's also one of the reasons that we see that our black and brown communities are harder hit by COVID. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that, right, that we can pinpoint, but don't forget racism underlies a lot of those. And some of the other factors that we need to think about, as we already mentioned, that our, our black and brown communities are part of the farming community, the field workers, they're part of our frontline workers, they're part of our uh, supportive healthcare workers like home health aides, where they really have an increased exposure, especially for our elderly population, um, that we have a higher rates of underlying health conditions. We have higher rates of food insecurity so that people don't get healthy access to food, access to healthy food. Um, and really, a lot of them just have less access to health care. And I'd have to say that housing is another intersection for food insecurity and health disparities, and really it's related to poverty. There's more likely to be crowding conditions uh, for some of our families um, in the um, disenfranchised communities, and certainly um, with our immigrant population as well as uh, lower-income population, they're more likely to have multi-generational families, um, and it's Immigrants, it's very common in Latino and Asian families to live with all of your relatives. That's just cultural, mm -hmm. um, but it's also economic. So take a step back for a second. Um, I assume you've looked at data in terms of who's being vaccinated and who's not. And as you talk to more federally qualified health centers, hospitals, etc., there's an increasingly larger portion of employees uh, Latino, African-American, et cetera, who are refusing to be vaccinated. Uh, tell me why. I really wish I could tell you why so that we could debunk some of those things. But one reason that we do know um, are myths. One of the reasons we know myths. Um, there are a lot of um untrue things that are being spread, certainly among um, social media users. There, there, one gentleman I met actually at the King Kennedy mobile unit said he was afraid to get vaccinated because he heard that it was killing people, that the vaccine was killing people. And like intuitively, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Um, and so it, it the responsibility rely, it lies on all of us to make mm -hmm. sure that when we're using social media that we share useful information and from validated sources. And the other big issue that I know is is real and tangible is distrust among black and brown and certainly immigrant communities for our government. Um, and I have to say there's some basis for that. And it doesn't take very much history to look back. For example, the Tuskegee experiment about syphilis withholding treatment from black men to see what happens when they get syphilis. And that was government-sponsored. Although the government has apologized, that's not erased from our memories. And for our immigrant population, there's the threats of being on any public list of being deported, even if you are documented. Right. Um, so there are a lot of real reasons um, for um, mistrust. And there are a lot of truly false reasons that have sown distrust in our communities. So what can we do to explain to people that we're, we live in a pandemic, it's not going to disappear anytime soon, uh, even for those people who've had uh, both vaccinations, uh, what steps do they, is it, 
what steps does the public still need to take and continue to take? Well, the first thing I would say that we really need to do is keep educated and keep sharing valid, useful information from good scientific sources. We rely a lot on government news. The Centers for Disease Control, National Institute of Health, those are reliable sources. We had some dip in trust over the last four years for some good reasons. The scientists are back at the forefront of those government institutions, and that matters a lot. But if you don't trust government sources, look at universities. We have a lot of universities locally that um, do really good research. And regardless of some of the rumors, doctors and scientists, most of them have entered the field to try and help other humans and with good intentions. No, no industry is without bad apples, for lack of a better word, but generally they aren't out to harm and out, aren't out to lie. There are good sources. And if you find a source you're not sure about it, look for another source to see if you can really validate that, yeah, this is useful information. I can trust this. They're telling me the vaccine is good. They're telling me masks help. So there are ways to make sure that you get information that helps you protect yourself and your family. And while we're talking about protecting yourself and your family, even if you've had both doses of the vaccines that are currently available, we know it protects you against getting sick and getting severely ill. We don't know yet if it protects you against the virus getting infection into your nose. So it's possible that you can carry those viruses in your nose and you stay well, but you could shred it out to somebody else. That's why you still need to wear your mask. You still need to maintain your hand hygiene. And please keep up social distancing. Um, the further, farther apart you are from the next human, the less likely you are to shed germs to them. And don't gather with people outside of your household. A football game is not worth giving COVID to your grandma. Uh, we have two vaccines today, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, there's a third that is asked for emergency authorization. Can you talk about the third one, which I believe is Johnson & Johnson, and also the fact that none of these are FDA approved yet? These are emergency approved, but not officially approved by the FDA. That's a really good point. So emergency use authorization means just that. They, we're in an emergency and they have enough data um, the companies have given enough data to the FDA for them to say it is worth using to protect our population. Um, and so the Pfizer and Moderna are the messenger RNA vaccines that got out first, have been in use since um, mid early December. And we can talk a little more about that if you'd like. Um, but the one that's coming up at, for review for emergency use authorization is the Johnson & Johnson, which the meeting with the FDA is scheduled for February 26th. It just now, got why posted. Why does it have to take – today is February 10th, I think. <laughs> why does it take so long to get – to come before the FDA when we know in, a, in the midst of a pandemic, we don't have enough vaccines that are being produced or have been produced. Why isn't there a greater urgency for the FDA to speed up when they would meet with Johnson & Johnson? Absolutely wonderful question. And the first reason is uh, government regulation. The FDA is required to have two weeks public notice that they're going to review a new product at their VERPAC, the Vaccine Review Biologic Product 
advisory committee. I think those are the right um, letters. They ha- it's required two weeks of public notice. So once they got the application and they could set the date, that's about it's been about two and a half weeks. So that's just reality. Unlike some of the other agencies that review new biologic uh, products in the United States, the FDA independently analyzes all of the data. It goes, and that is time-consuming. And, and it's qualitative. And, and, and quantitative. Yes, but, but I mean, yeah. one of the reasons that we both support with the FDA is the timeliness and the length of time is because they take the time to study the data qualitatively, quantitatively, so that when medications are approved in this country, they're, 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 everyone should know that they've been approved. With, it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval through the FDA. Same thing. And I don't know if you know this. I actually was a medical reviewer for the FDA Office of Vaccines, and I know how painful it is to go through those data. Yeah, and it takes that long, genuinely, and usually longer. <laughs> so we've got um, two vaccines and one uh, that will go before the FDA in a couple of weeks. What are the differences between the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccines? The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are made very similarly. They're both made with messenger RNA. What's that mean in English? So if you think back to your high school biology class, you're made up of DNA, right? And then, but you have a bunch of messenger RNA all through your cells too. But the virus only has messenger RNA. The viruses aren't complete. They need someone else to help them out to live. So they, but what messenger RNA does is just kind of what it sounds like. It has a message. It takes it in and tells your DNA what to do. Um, it that doesn't get in your DNA. It just delivers a message. And this, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines tell your DNA, hey, can you make some spike protein from this coronavirus? Which is really clever because then your your immune system goes wait a minute, what's going on? We shouldn't be having spike protein from a virus and it makes an immune response. So you're not getting the whole virus. You can't get COVID from that vaccine. The messenger RNA does not get into your DNA, which is one of the rumors that's been going around. All it does is tell your immune system the message, oh, wait, there's spike protein from a virus. Let's build a protection against it. So then what happens with the messenger RNA is that it actually is pretty easily broken down by your body because it rec- it's recognized as foreign. So the, both the companies have packaged it in little lipid bubbles, lipid that's kind of similar to stuff that is in the environment all around. And those little lipid bubbles bubbles survive long enough to get down inside. And then they break down and they're gone. And that's the only real difference between the vaccine structures is they use a little bit different lipid um, delivery systems. The Pfizer vaccine requires some, as I'm sure you've heard, pretty stringent handling, mm-hmm. including the ultra code freezers. The Moderna can survive in a regular freezer, vaccine freezer. Both of those require two doses. And after those two doses, both have about 94 or more protection against bad COVID, which is great news, way better than we could have ever expected. The new Johnson & Johnson vaccine submitted to the FDA also tricks your immune system into making protection against the spike protein, but it it uses another kind of virus, an adenovirus carrier that's been weakened so that it can't cause infection, but it takes that 
RNA message in to your body so that your immune system knows to make an immune response to the the spike protein. It's shown to be about 72% protective against most um, moderate, a little better against severe disease and hospitalizations. Dr. Fauci, as everyone knows, the uh, leading expert in infectious disease in the country, has said, don't compare those efficacies. They were done at different times during the pandemic. The uh, Johnson & Johnson was done um, when there were more mutants emerging, which we can talk about a little bit later. And that 72% protection is really pretty good with the bonus that the Johnson & Johnson only requires one vaccine and no special handling. So what's attractive about that is that it can go a whole lot of places. It might be an option that's easier to take it out to farm sites, uh, to work sites. So if you have 100% of those farm workers protected with the 72% vaccine, that's great. You're likely to not have virus get in there. That's still better than waiting for 10% of them to get immunized with the 94% vaccine that they can't get to the field. Side effects. You know, lots of conversations about the impact of the second dose uh, in both cases. What can you tell us about what to expect, if anything? Um, The vaccines hurt, (laughs) straight up. But it doesn't seem to be much different than the annual flu vaccine to give people a framework, um, something with which they're familiar. It gives you a sore arm. And it seemed to happen more after the second dose in both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine studies. The public data for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine hasn't been released yet, but also the, the prelim data early studies suggest it also causes arm pain. Um, some people will get almost a flu-like illness with some fever, fatigue, and achiness, that kind of stuff. The best I can tell you is those side effects seem to be way less concerning than getting COVID. No question about it. You know, that the, the whole idea of this conversation and others that we're having is to help people understand the importance of being vaccinated uh, for COVID, for the flu, for everything your child needs before he or she uh, goes to school, things we should not be afraid of and things that vaccinations do not cause. COVID-19, the vaccines fighting against COVID-19 are not going to cause other problems that people will talk about. It's all myth as opposed to reality. Um, I do have one adverse reaction that got to talk about that received a lot of news attention, and that's the anaphylaxis, which is the severe reactions where people have like swelling of their uh, lips and tongue or passing out, dropping their blood pressure, those kind of things. That does happen. There is a rate of about 11 per 1 million doses. Mm. Um, So that's pretty rare. And if you think about it, we have, what, three, four hundred million people in the United States. So if everybody gets vaccinated, we are going to see those events. And we have seen those events. Oh, and we also know that in the second shot that people get, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, some people have not just a sore arm, but there's other reactions, as you described, flu-like symptoms. People get a body rash. Uh, it is not uncommon for people. The stories have been told by healthcare workers where someone gets the second shot of, of a Pfizer drug or the Moderna drug and eight, seven, eight days later, a rash shows up. So, I mean, those are, those are okay because it tells your body that it's reacting with the antibodies that exist there. And don't be afraid of that, but make sure you tell your medical professionals, you know, 
keep track of the data. The only thing that is considered a true contraindication is if you were known anaphylaxis to a component of the vaccine. I was back working in the hospital um, briefly, and I received both shots. And I have to tell you, I didn't have any more reactions after the second vaccine. My husband, who is also a physician and is not particularly a weenie, had a lot of fatigue and just not feeling great after the second dose. But 24 hours later, was fine. Well, we all hope he recovered well and <laughs> and we'll send him home some chocolate that maybe, <laughs> you know, re-energize his, uh, his bones. <laughs> Let's move to a different topic on people, vaccin- vaccines, masks, uh, gloves. You see people doing, wearing all kinds of product. Could be a face mask, as we've talked about. It could be a head mask. Uh, with a plastic shield. You see people wearing gloves. What's your advice to people when they go into a grocery store? Do they need more than just a a mask or a face covering? This is one of the points that actually has been a problem for the scientists. Early on in the pandemic, the data that we had suggested that masks didn't matter. But then we got more data um, that clearly proved masks, masks do matter. And even though the scientific community embraced the new data and felt comfortable, it's been thrown back. It was like, well, you lied to us early on. It wasn't a lie. It's that we learned more. And I implore the community to be, to be open that we are all learning during this pandemic and there are going to be changes and hopefully stick with data proven changes. So for masks, yes, they work. And the better the mask, the better it works. Everyone knows the health grade N95s. They're called N95s because it takes or blocks out 95% of the germs. Next, we have the surgical masks, especially with the nose clip. Um, Those have better protection than the cloth mask. They're around 65 to 70% Mm -hmm. of reducing the germ spreading. Cloth mask, one layer, Better than nothing, but not ideal. You need to have at least two layers in your homemade cloth mask to really block. And you can see lovely visuals of this on good source uh, sites like CDC and and World Health Organization. The neck things that people use, like a lot of them have sports teams. I don't even know what they're called. They don't work. They're called neck things. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) They don't work. Face shields alone aren't enough, especially because a lot of them have opening on the sides. Right. A mask with a face shield is not an unreasonable thing to wear if you're going into uh, a place where there are a lot of people that you can't keep your social distance from them. We do use face masks in the hospital and shields to go with them. Um, But we have N95s, obviously. You can get N95s at a lot of suppliers now. The KN95s aren't um, as reliably produced as medical-grade N95s. So where's a good place to buy a medically qualified N95? Um, Right now, they're still asking you not to as a community members. They're still trying to protect those for healthcare frontline workers. President Biden is supposedly going to change that with some of the defense, um, what is it, Defense Act, um, to have production change and have more um, made in the U.S. The KN95s you can find in a lot of places. I don't need to mention any names, but pretty much any place you would pick up um, medical supplies, you can find a, KN90, a KN95. 
people have been vaccinated. They're wearing their masks. They're beginning to see friends now who've also been vaccinated. What do, what should they be aware of? Can they be in a pod uh, and take off their masks? And what's the risk as compared to being in that that four or six person group and still wearing your masks? The recommendations are to still wear your mask. As we mentioned, the vaccine protects you from getting really sick, um, but we don't know yet if it protects you from getting infected and being able to shed the virus to others. If you've been in your pod and only your pod, like the uh, same as your household members, and they haven't been out with anybody else and they haven't gone to work and they have every followed every single rule, you're probably not as uh, much risk as you might be if you walk into a room full of strangers at a bar. However, the pods like that are pretty rare where mm. no one's going out. No one's had any other exposures outside of that pod. It just practically isn't, isn't true. What about um, people who've had reactions to other vaccines? Should they pursue a COVID-19 vaccine? Should they be, should they be worried? The Centers for Disease Control has a list of contraindications and recommendations for um, who can and can't take uh, the COVID vaccines. At this moment, the recommendation, the only contraindication listed is known anaphylaxis to a COVID vaccine or its components. If you've had a reaction to other vaccines, they just uh, recommend discussing it with your healthcare provider, but you should, they do encourage you to still strongly consider getting immunized if you're in, in the tier that's there, that's currently being immunized. But in what county you're in in California, it could vary. So. Oh, my gosh. And it changes constantly. Uh, it changes by the hour because yeah. someone's made a decision that didn't tell anybody else. And, you know, this is it's, it's sad. What about people who've had COVID, uh, survived, thankfully, uh, and need a vaccination? Is there a point where they should be vaccinated? There's a period they should wait? What's your uh, thoughts? In the trials with both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, they included people that had a history of COVID or people that actually got COVID during the study um, study period, which started last year. Um, there were no additional problems with tolerating the vaccine for people that had a history of COVID. However, what we have learned is that people that have COVID do not seem to get reinfected in about 90 days or so afterwards. So they have sort of encouraged people who've had a recent diagnosis of COVID to wait because there are other people probably that need to be first in line to get the vaccines. There are more and more hospitals or other healthcare providers doing the antibody uh, infusions for those people who've, who have COVID. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and what your thoughts are on that just generally? Um, I'm, I'm not as versed in these data for use of the monoclonals right. and also p use of serum from people that have convalesced mm -hmm. from having COVID. It seems that people... Early on in some of the prelim data, preliminary data, they have found that if they give people that have COVID early some of those antibodies, that their recovery time is quicker. Um, so they've taken some mono, uh, some of those convalescent antibodies, human antibodies, 
try to figure out which part was the most important and then linked it up to uh, antibody they could make in the lab called a monoclonal. It's specific from one part of that antibody, mono. Um, and now they've done studies to show that use of those monoclonals, again, early on, um, help people from getting more severe disease and having a quicker recovery. The monoclonals so far do not seem to have a role if you're already in the hospital requiring oxygen or ventilation support. They're still doing studies, but that's what we know at this point. And Golden Valley Health Centers, um, which serves a lot of our um, community and at least uh, half of the kids in the county um, who have public insurance has monoclonals, and they are using it for some of their clients. And Legacy Health Endowment is funding them to set up a clinic in Turlock. Good news. So we won't have to send people outside the four walls of Stan County or Merced County to, to, for assistance. The good news about using it early on is that it there, the data seem to imply or su- not imply, suggest that it keeps them out of the hospital, um, which especially over those previous six weeks when we were running so low on ICU beds and staff, the, that was important, you know, and maybe again in the future. So we've talked about Moderna, Pfizer, and the J&J drug that's uh, coming before the FDA are there other medic are there other drugs in the pipeline to help fight covid nineteen and the pandemic there actually there are more vaccines even in the pipeline. There are about fifty vaccine candidates globally that are either under development in clinical trials or already being used in their population, for example, China and India have and Russia also has something although we know very little about the composition of uh, those vaccines. Um, there are other monoclonals being developed. there are medications being looked at, some of the medications that blunt your immune response um, seems promising, but you know we don't have all of the data just yet. That's one of the reasons actually for steroid use is steroids um, help blunt decrease your immune response, Mm -hmm. which helps people with really severe disease. Some of the most notable complications, everyone knows about the lungs failing. It seems like a lot of that is related to not so much the virus, but the immune system getting an out-of-control response. So using tricks to decrease your body's immune response, but that you're still able to recover from it is the drug, that sweet spot that people are looking for. You know, it's always wonderful to talk to you because you're so damn smart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it's uh, it's just educational every time we can have these conversations. Is there anything else that we should share with the public about the pandemic, COVID-19, things that people should not be afraid of, should take action? You know, it's it's not just washing your hands, teaching your child, count it from A to Z, sing the ABC song. I do it every day now because I've got so used to it. It's ridiculous, but it works. What else can we do to help families understand the importance of being careful? Um, you know, I would like to talk about the mutations of the virus that have made um, the news so much lately. Uh, and everyone is kind of panicking almost about, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are these vaccines going to be useless? First of all, viruses mutate. 
their job is to find a host to live in because, as I mentioned, they can't survive on their own. So if the host has figured a way to keep them out, they got to find a way to get in. And the way I describe mutations is like Lego blocks. You know, if you think about your child sitting around building Legos and they take out the blue piece to put in a green piece, you know, just for something different. The virus does that. It takes out pieces and puts in new pieces because it needs to get in your body and survive. This is not a new concept, and the community knows that because they're used to flu vaccines. The reason you get a flu vaccine every year is that virus mutates. The reason we hope people get a flu vaccine every year is— I beg them to get a flu vaccine every year. And I beg them as well. (laughs) And the more adults I meet who don't get vaccinated— you, yeah. All you can do is shake your head and ask why. Yeah. So it's my job and our job and anyone who's in the know about vaccines to do our best to get the news out. Vaccines save lives. They they help. So that's the same thing with the COVID vaccine. Even with these mutations emerging, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines still have efficacy. They still have some protection for you. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as I mentioned, the data aren't totally public yet, but we're going to know February 26th how well they're doing. It seems a little lower against the South African strain. But it may be that these mutations teach us that we are going to have to cheat, treat um, coronavirus just like we do flu, that every year you might need a booster or even maybe for a couple of years to get, until we get this thing under control, people are going to need a booster. That's still to be told stay tuned. But they shouldn't be afraid just because this vaccine might not be perfect against every mutation out there that they shouldn't get it. Any vaccine against COVID is likely to offer you something to help you stay safer. And we know that also from the flu vaccine, because even in a year when the flu vaccine doesn't totally match that mutation that year, you do better if you've had the vaccine than if you haven't. Um, And it's a good reminder, as you already said, is get all the vaccines that are recommended for you and your age group. It's wonderful to have a conversation with you, as always. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Jeffrey Lewis, President and CEO of Legacy Health Endowment and the EMC Health Foundation. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.